Now, this morning we're going to be beginning a new series, uh, which will take us uh, into the autumn, if we're not already at the autumn uh, just now. And we're going to be thinking about the seven churches in Revelation, which I hope and pray uh, will be helpful to us as a church here in the 21st uh, century. So reading this morning is from Revelation, Revelation chapter 2 and verses 1 through to 7. Revelation 2 and verses 1 to 7. And this first short letter is written to the church in Ephesus. The Apostle John writes this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Amen. God will bless his reading from his holy word. Now, this morning we are beginning our new series in the book of Revelation and thinking about the seven churches. Uh, So if you do have your Bible there, please do turn back to Revelation uh, chapter 2. Now, usually when we come to the book of Revelation, there are usually two reactions. There are those who say, oh, no. Probably because we all know Revelation is the one at the very end of the Bible, and it's that kind of difficult book. There's all these kind of symbols and numbers and all this stuff going on. And and for some of us, it's just too much. We think, oh, I can't can't really cope with that. Uh, let's just stick with the Gospels, because they are far easier. But there are those also who are the complete opposite. They love the book of Revelation. They love the symbolism and the, the visions and how everything ends, and, and God ultimately making everything right. Or maybe you're just a wee bit in the middle somewhere. Over the next few weeks as we get into the autumn, we're going to be looking at part of the book of Revelation and specifically the letters to the seven churches. Now, just to orientate us here, Revelation is written by John, uh, the Apostle John, Disciple John, uh, John and James, his brother James, remember the Sons of Thunder, a very close uh, disciple of Jesus. It's written on the island of Patmos, uh, where John had been exiled because Christians at that time were being persecuted. 
And it was written towards the end of the first century AD. And so John, by this time, would have been an old man. He would certainly have been in his 80s, maybe heading towards 90. Now, revelation means unveiling, translating the Greek word apocalypsis. So this is apocalyptic literature. If you don't know anything about apocalyptic literature, I'm sure you know films like Apocalypse. You know what it means about the end of the world, okay? And so Revelation is all about uh, the end of the world. And it's in many ways similar in form to what you have in Daniel in the Old Testament. And so there is symbolism in Revelation, and the focus uh, is on the end times in the vision that John sees. Now, after the the prologue in chapter 1, we come to the seven churches in chapter 2. And we're going to be thinking about these uh, letters to the seven churches. Now, what you'll notice is that our reading today was only seven verses. And so, these letters to the churches are, are very brief and very concentrated. They're like short oracles that you would get in the Old Testament, such as in the book of Amos. And what you'll notice as we go through these letters to the churches is they're all identical in structure. Firstly, there is a description about Christ. Then there is praise for the commendable features of a church. Then there's criticism for its faults. And then it concludes with a promise of rewards to be bestowed at the coming of Christ. And so there's always that structure, and that's worth looking at as we go through these letters together. Now, the first letter we're going to look at today is the letter to the church in Ephesus. And it was probably the first letter here because Ephesus was one of the great cities of the ancient world, the largest city in Asia Minor. And of course, it had in that city the huge temple devoted to Artemis there. But of course, If you know the book of Acts, you'll know that Paul went to Ephesus and he planted a church uh, there, as we read about in Acts chapter 19, and he spent three years of his life ministering in Ephesus. He used it as a mission base uh, to go to other places in Asia Minor. Now, as we begin looking at what's written to the church in Ephesus, It's important for us to note that throughout these letters, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Okay, we see that at the end of chapter 1. And the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches themselves. So the, the, the golden, seven golden lampstands represent each of the churches. Okay? Okay, so hopefully that's helped you just work out exactly where we are. As we go through these letters, hopefully it's a wee bit easier uh, than that. And there is a message uh, for each of these churches that I think will be relevant for us as a church today. So let's have a think about this letter to the church in Ephesus. Now, firstly, in this letter, we we have a description of Jesus. That's what we have in uh, verse 1 of our chapter. We have a description of Jesus. He holds the seven stars in his right hand. And he walks among the seven golden lampstands, the seven churches. Now, what's this verse pointing us towards? Well, there's a sense here 
of reminding the Ephesian church that Jesus is the one who's in control. He's the one who places the stars where he pleases. He's the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And it's important as we begin this series to remember that in the church, it's Jesus who's in charge. It's Jesus who's in charge. More and more these days, we see in various realms of society the cult of personality. We, we see that, don't we? And sadly, that comes uh, even within the church. I guess it's, it's always been that way to some extent. You know, I follow uh, Apollos. I follow Paul. You know, some even followed Jesus. We know that uh, from First uh, Corinthians. And then throughout the ages, there would be those who followed Martin Luther, those who followed Calvin. And today, even more so, there is a cult of personality, even within the church. And sometimes people are guilty of, of going to church, not to worship God, but to hear a certain preacher, or because they like the style of worship, rather than saying it's about God, it's about Jesus. In the church, we are the body of Christ. He's the one who is the head of the church. He's the one who's in charge and in control. And so as we gather together as his people, we're called to worship him and serve him. And so right at the beginning of this letter, there's a reminder, Jesus is the one who's in control. It's not about uh, the power that the, the church has. It's about Jesus. Now we then move on to see what the Ephesian church is commended for. We see this in verses 2 and 3 and also in verse 6. We see that as a church and as a, a congregation together, they are hardworking, they persevere. We see that they cannot tolerate wicked people, that they are spiritually discerning when it comes to false prophets. They've endured hardship and yet they've not grown weary. And so what we see here is that this is a, a serving church. It's a sacrificing church. A church that was discerning when it comes to, to falsehood. Their doctrine is, is correct, that is right. And we see in verse 6 that they hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. Now the Nicolaitans are thought to have been a heretical sect whose name means victory people. They were apparently false teachers, although it's difficult to discern here of what uh, nature. But what we're sure is that the Ephesian church is commended for standing against false teaching, unlike the church in Pergamum, which we'll see, uh, God willing, in a couple of weeks' time. So what I want you to see here is that the, the impression of the church here in Ephesus is of a church which is, is busy, it's hardworking, there are suffering people there who, who bore their burdens without growing weary, who stand up for what is right and true. Now, as you think about these things, that looks like a congregation that's just about perfect, doesn't it? It does. They're wonderful. They're busy. They, they seem to be doing the, the right things. They're self-sacrificing. They don't grow weary. Their doctrine is correct has so much going for it, doesn't it? But the one who's among the lampstands sees 
into their hearts and has a different diagnosis from what we might say. Because this church in Ephesus has forsaken their first love. You see, what we do for the Lord is important. But so is why we do it. And what the church in Ephesus has forgotten is their first love. They've forgotten their first love. Now, what is their first love? Well, it's devotion to Christ. Devotion to Jesus. You see, it seems as though the church in Ephesus is doing so many good things. But to some extent, they've, they've forgotten why they're doing it. It's a bit like love in a marriage, isn't it? The honeymoon love of a husband and wife is exciting, fervent, uninhibited. And while married love should grow deeper and, and richer, it should never lose the wonder of those honeymoon days. And when a husband and wife take each other for granted and, and life becomes routine, then the marriage is in danger. Is it possible that the Ephesian church was serving sacrificing, suffering, and yet not really loving Christ. And Jesus is saying here, where is your love? Where is your passion for me? It's a bit like the story of Mary and Martha in the Gospels, isn't it? We know that story in, in Luke's Gospel, where Jesus had gone to, to Bethany to stay uh, with Mary and Martha as good friends. And what happened when Jesus got there? Well, Martha was, was busy getting everything ready, get everything prepared, preparing the meal, making sure the, the bedrooms were, were right, the sheets were done. You know what it's like when you've got a visitor to stay. These were all good things. Her intention was to, to honor Jesus. Mary, in contrast, looks lazy, doesn't she? Because what did she do? She sat at the feet of Jesus, simply listening to him. And after a while, Martha gets really fed up. She's running around the house. She's doing the dusting, the ironing, the hoovering. Didn't have hoovers in those days, but you know what I'm saying. She's fed up. Jesus, will you tell Mar Mary to, to come and help me? I'm busy. I'm running off my feet here. She doesn't expect the answer that Jesus gives to her. Martha, Martha, you're worried about so many things. But Mary has chosen what is better. I think that shocked Martha. Shocked her. Because what was Mary doing? She was just sitting, listening to Jesus. Mary's commended. Why? Because she chose what was better to listen to Jesus, to adore Jesus. So the Ephesians have forsaken their first love. They've lost their focus on why they're doing what they're doing. They've become careless. And in our own lives, and in our own church corporately together, we have to be careful that we don't forsake our first love. You see, there are so many good things that we can do as a church, but sometimes we get so bound up with, with things to forget why we're doing what we're doing and who we're doing it for. And we can forget 
that we are called to love Jesus. As a church, we can drift, become careless, and become cold, rather than on fire for Jesus. Now, notice here, this is not about doctrine. This is not saying that the Ephesian church were not sorted when it came to doctrine. They believed the right things. They were, they were commended for that. But what Jesus is saying is, where is your heart? Where's your heart? Yes, you believe the right things in your head, but where's your heart? Is this not what we see in our churches today? Some great stuff happening. But where's the love for Jesus? And I believe there is a challenge also for our own individual lives too, isn't there? You see, so often we can lose focus as to why we're doing what we're doing. We do our Bible reading because we know that's a good thing to do. But we forget that it's through the Bible that we meet with Jesus. We pray. And we bring our shopping list to God. And we pray because we know that's the right thing to do. But we forget that when we pray, it's the true and living God that we are speaking to in prayer. You see, the Ephesians had lost their way, lost their passion, lost their fire, lost their love. They've neglected to love Christ. And the question for you and I this morning is this. Have we? Have we lost our passion? Have we lost our way? Have we lost our first love? Maybe you remember times back in your life, especially when you first came to Jesus. And you know that you were on fire for Christ. You know that it meant so much to you. You thought about the cross. You realized that Jesus died for you on the cross. And your, your spirit within you leapt. But as the years have gone by, perhaps you've lost that enthusiasm. Perhaps you've been ground down. You've lost your first love. Have we lost our first love this morning? As a church, have we? As individuals, have we? The Ephesian church is in danger if it doesn't repent. It's in danger of losing its light. If this was the end of the letter, that would be depressing, wouldn't it? Goodness. But note here, there's a way back. There is a way back. And it's through repentance. Now what is repentance? It's admitting that you're on the wrong path. And turning back to the right path is coming back to God. You see, the Ephesians are called to, to look over, to, to see how far they have fallen. And once they've considered their ways, once they've looked and seen, they're called to repent and return to the things that they did at first. And the same is true for us. To repent. To turn back to Jesus. To admit our wrongdoing and our sin. And to go back to what we know, which is forgiveness and hope, that is found at the cross at Calvary. You see, for us as individual Christians, it's good for us to be reminded of the first time that we came to the Lord, when we understood for the first time what the cross was about, and when we put our faith and trust in Jesus.
And sometimes we need to remind ourselves of that, that honeymoon period of faith and to remember what it was like and say, Lord, I want to know that once more. Will you bring it home to my heart once more? How much you mean to me, how much you love me, that I too might love you. As we remember that, as we consider all that God has done, we come back to Jesus and we put our faith in him once more and we rejoice in him. And as a church, this is really important for us to do. And perhaps with all that's happened in the, in the past 18 months or so with COVID and the restrictions and church buildings being closed and still restrictions this morning as, you know, I can't see your bright smiling faces because your masks are on. Perhaps with all that's happened in the last 18 months, this has allowed us as a church to reset, to think through what our priorities are, to come back to Jesus to love him first and foremost before we do anything else. You see, so often in the church, we, we end up doing things, don't we? And we're in perpetual motion, and we don't end up knowing why we're doing these things. We just do them anyway. There's a story that the minister I was on placement with in, in Perth used to tell. And it was of a, a woman who'd just got married. And she was trying to impress her husband. And so she decided that she would uh, make a Sunday roast dinner. And so she got a, a joint of meat. And she took the joint of meat and she, she whacked it in two. And she put half the joint of meat in the oven. And her husband scratched her head. There's a whole joint of meat there. Why did you put it in two and put it in the oven? Well, I saw my mother do that. That's why I did it. And so she went and she spoke to her mother and said, Look, you know, I saw you when I was growing up. You know, you cut the joint of meat in two. Well, why did you do that? And, and her mother said, Well, I, I don't really know. I've always done it because I saw my mother doing it. And so the granddaughter went to the granny and said, Granny, I cut this joint in two and because I did it because my mother did it. And she said she did it because you did it. Why do you do it? And she said, well, when I first got married and I wanted to impress my husband, we only had a small oven. And that's why I cut my joint in two. It was the only way I could get it to fit in. Now, we understand the, the, the point of that story, don't we? That sometimes we continue on with things and we don't really know why we're doing them. We just do them because of tradition. We just do them because they've been done in the past. But perhaps the Spirit is leading us to do things differently. But we must always remember what our first love is, which is to love Jesus. So this morning, as individuals and as a church, are we loving Jesus first and foremost? And if we realize that we're lacking in that department, you know, and this is a challenge for all of us as a church family, 
But if we realize we're lacking as individuals, let's come before God in repentance and in faith. Because when we do, do you see what the promise is in verse 7? If we hear what the Spirit is saying, the one who is victorious will eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. The overcomers, those who truly believe, will receive the victory and the reward. Today, do we hear what the Spirit is saying to us? Have we as a church forsaken our first love? Have we forgotten that whatever we do and whatever we go, it's all about Jesus? And what about us as individuals? You see, there are times, if we're honest, and I'm as bad for this as you probably will be too, there are times when we go through the motions. We go to church because it's the thing to do, but we forget it's about Jesus. There are times when we might even do great things in the church, make great sacrifices in the church, but if we really look into our heart, we recognize our motivation is wrong, that it's actually become about us. And not about the Lord, not about Jesus. Have we forsaken our first love? If we have, let's repent. Let's come to Jesus. Let's honor him. Let's adore him. Let's worship him. A church without Christ is empty. Indeed, it isn't a church at all. As a church, may we remember the love that we had at first. And may that shape all that we are and all that we do. And as believers in Jesus, as this passage pierces us to the quick, may we worship and adore the Lord. May we love him and put him first in all things. And if we recognize this morning we're not doing that, may we repent and believe. And as we do so, may we know the promises that God gives to us in Jesus. So this morning, let's not be deaf to what the Lord is saying to us, but may we have ears to hear, and may Jesus be our first love. Shall we just pray together? Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, when we think about this church in Ephesus, we see that there is so much to commend them for. They are hardworking. They sacrifice so much. They are not weary of doing good. Their doctrine is right. And yet, Lord God, they've lost their heart. They've forgotten their first love. And Father, as we think about what Jesus says to this church in Ephesus in the first century, we think about ourselves here in West Kilbride in the 21st century. And we recognize that this passage is a challenge to us because it questions our motivations. So often in the church, Lord God, we recognize that we can do things, but we can do things for ourselves or we can do things because of tradition, or we can do things because it's the right thing to do, rather than having the right motivation. 
which is Christ, and to love him first and foremost. And Lord God, we recognize that this passage is also a challenge to us as individuals. Because sometimes in our Christian life, even though we're still doing the thing, all the things that we did before, we recognize that we can grow cold, that our hearts are not on fire for you. And perhaps, Lord God, we need to look back, to look back at that time when we believed for the first time, or that time when we, we knew you so close. And we need to come before you in repentance and faith. And we need to say, Lord God, set us, our hearts on fire once more, that we might serve you with all that we have, and our motivation would be Jesus and Jesus alone. So, Heavenly Father, we pray that we might be challenged by this passage, but we also might be comforted from it, because we recognize when there is repentance and faith, then there's also victory, and there is a promise of being with you forever and ever in paradise. So, loving Lord God, we thank you for your word to us this day, and we ask that you would speak to us through it. In Jesus' name, amen.